You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Thanks. Hi, guys. Oh, yes, I'm going to steal this. I hope that's okay, musicianese. Um, I am Fab. So that's, I know that doesn't sound like a real name, but my real name is Fabienne, and that doesn't sound like a real name either. So <laughs> that's the deal. Um, let me pray for us, and then let's get started. <sighs> um, God, I, um, I just come before you in weakness. Um, you know every detail of my life. You know every detail of my heart. You know that I am the least of all the saints. You know that I am the worst of all sinners. Um, and yet you have given me grace to steward for these women. And you have given me the gift of your gospel according to your power that I might be a minister of it. That I, the least of all the saints and the worst of all sinners, would today get to talk about you. I'd get to have your name on my lips. Um, and I thank you that because of your son, because of the blood of Jesus, we can all come before you right now in faith and in boldness, knowing that you're going to bless us with your presence today. Because in Christ, we get every blessing that you have to give. And so we come before you wrapped up in his righteousness, just tucked up inside of it. And we ask you, Dad, Father, meet with us. We got a lot of things we want. We, we got a lot of things we long for. But we confess to you right now, even if we don't feel it, that we believe that at the bottom of our hearts, what we want is you. What we long for is you. And um, Father, you know that that's my heart today. I want to see you. I want to meet with you. Um, I, I pray that that would be the longing of every heart in this room. And I pray that you would um, move to answer that prayer. And I ask all that because of um, the perfect righteousness of your son, Jesus. Amen. Awesome. Well, along the weakness theme, we should get started on that note. Um, I am ill-equipped by every standard of the word ill-equipped to teach on biblical womanhood, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, when you want to have someone come in and speak on biblical womanhood, you want it to be a woman who's been married for like 60, 70 years, and you want it to be someone who's, you know, been faithful all of their life. Um, and I'm, I'm not that girl. I'm in my 30s, and I'm single. Never been married, um, never had kids. I, I'm going to talk about biblical womanhood as I see it in the scriptures and as I've wrestled with it. Um, and, and I wish that I could talk from all my experiences as a, a mom and a wife, but I can't. So I'm, I'm going to talk to you today about what I see in the Word of God. And I'm going to try to trust the gospel as what equips me to teach on this and the grace of God. That's all I got going for me. So know that. Um, when I was praying for you guys and thinking about who might be here today and the kind of women that might be in this room, I think there's usually two kinds of women um, who, who sit under the teaching of biblical womanhood. The first is the category of those of you in here who may um, not have heard a lot of this stuff before or who may have heard it and hate it. You know, the word helper makes you want to shoot someone in the face. Um, <laughs> I was, I am, such am I, that's me. I uh, first heard about biblical womanhood, um, I've been a Christian for about two years, this was about nine years ago, and I was reading a book by Elizabeth Elliot called Passion and Purity, and I literally shut the book and threw it across the room and was like, no thank you, Elizabeth, we're not going to be pals. Um, we are, we are now pals, not in real life, but in my fantasy world. <laughs> 
Um, in heaven, we're going to be pals. But that's how I felt. I didn't grow up in a home like this. I grew up in a, in a non-Christian environment. My dad wouldn't let us watch Pretty Woman because he wanted us to know that no woman ever needed to be rescued. Um, He wouldn't let me dance on the drill team because he didn't want me to be objectified. I was taught to be an independent, um, take care of myself, don't need a man kind of woman. And so when I became a Christian in college, it was um, interesting to encounter God's perspective on women, um, which had some things in common with my dad's view, but a lot of things not in common with my dad's view. So know that I hear you, then I understand you. Um, And I I teach about biblical womanhood first and foremost because I think it's clear in God's word. I do. I wouldn't teach it if I didn't. But second, um, and, and maybe not less important to me in my life, I think it brings with it freedom. Like real freedom. I think deep down we just want to know who we're supposed to be. We just want someone to tell us how we can function rightly. And I think there's freedom in that. And, and there's limitations, there's, um, there's boundaries, there's rules that God puts on us as women, but that's not because he wants to sabotage our freedom, and it never has been. It's always been because he, he wants us to be free. I mean, this is the lie that Satan's been telling since the Garden of Eden, is that restrictions are the opposite of freedom, that if God tells you not to do something, it's because he's trying to hurt you. And that's not true. When God gives us restrictions, when he gives us boundaries, it's for our freedom. It's for our safety. It's like if you have two people jumping out of an airplane and one has a parachute on and one doesn't, one of them might feel more restraint. They might feel less free. They might feel all these restrictions, but those restrictions are actually saving them and allowing them to enjoy the experience of jumping out of an airplane, which I don't think anyone could really enjoy, but some people do. The other person who doesn't have the life jacket feels free all the way down, but I don't think there's joy in that. I don't, I don't know anyone who's had a good time falling out of an airplane without a parachute. So what we're going to talk about today, it does bring restriction. It does feel sometimes like, it, like it's a little tight around you, but it's for your freedom. It's for your safety. It's to help you enjoy this life and the next, okay? So that's the first group of people, those who maybe might be a little more uncomfortable with um, terms like helper. Um, the second group of people are those of you in here who are pros at biblical womanhood. You know, you've done the whole Proverbs 31 thing. You got the checkbox up on the refrigerator and literally you go through every day and like, okay, have I done that? Yeah, perfect. Proverbs 31, done. Um, I understand wanting a list of, of rules of what it looks like to be a biblical woman so that you can check the box because that makes you f- feel good, right? It makes you feel like maybe you're giving something back to God. But God doesn't need you to give anything back to him, and you can't. We're not going to make the cross into a transaction. We're not going to try to repay God for grace. Biblical womanhood is not about behavior modification. It's not about getting a list of things right. And so for those of you in this room who feel like you've, you've got this down, I want to encourage you today that the biblical womanhood is not a role. It's not a list of things you do. It's an identity. And until you're perfectly conformed to the image of Christ, there's room to grow in this identity. There's room to challenge your heart and dig in a little deeper and and rip off some of that flesh that's entangling and run the race that God has set out for you. Okay, so that's kind of the two groups that I see in here. I'm I'm so excited to talk about this. I I have learned a lot of these things the hard way, and most of them I haven't really even learned yet. I'm just talking, so (laughs) give me grace for that. (laughs) Let's start kind of in the beginning, because that's where God starts, um, with the design for biblical manhood and womanhood. I think they're perfect. Um, I'll read this verse to you. This is Genesis 1. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is the first time we get to see man and woman created by God. It's Genesis 1. It's this 30,000 foot level uh, view of creation, right? Where, where God kind of unpacks the story of what happened all in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, he's going to slow down and tell the story again, kind of zoom in on some of the characters. But Genesis 1 is just this overview. And I love that, that God did it this way. I love that he told the story this way because in the first chapter, he, he groups man and woman together and he calls them them. And he tells us what he did, why he made them, what he made them for. He, he made them in his image, right, after his likeness. And he made them, both of them, to have dominion over all the animals on the earth, over elephants and lions and my dog Toby and ants. And he did all that. He created them in the image of God. But he's still, even here, in this 30,000 foot level, he, he's clear to communicate that he created them male and female. That there was a distinction. He made the human, human beings, and he made two kinds of human beings. Boy human beings and girl human beings, okay? And God blessed them. And he gave them both this same ultimate calling to, to fill the earth. To fill the earth with image bearers of God. To fill the earth with people who reflect the glory of God. And so from this first account in Genesis 1, we learn a couple of things about man and woman, okay? We learn that they're equal. They're equal in personhood. Who was created with the unique, the unique pleasure, the gifting, the, the purpose of personhood, of displaying the image of God? It wasn't just man. It was man and woman. God made them both. He, he made creation, right? He gets started and he makes the heavens and the earth and all the stuff that he makes. He says it's all good. But he looks at the, the glory of creation that he's made to display who he is and something's lacking. He wants to put people. He wants an image bearer. And he makes man and woman to reflect his image. And that's where our value comes from, in looking like God. We, we have value because we look like God, okay? And so we're equal in value, man and woman equal in value. We're equal in importance. We both got dominion over the earth. It doesn't go man, woman, my dog Toby. It goes man and woman, my dog Toby. There's probably some things in between. <laughs> Toby's not very smart. Um, uh, so we have equal importance. And then we have an equal, equal ultimate calling, the calling to fill the earth with image bearers of God, to, to, to fill the earth with more people who reflect and display the truth of who God is. Okay, that's where we start. Um, and that, that has a couple of implications for us. Okay, it means first that, that men and women have this equal value and worth. They're to be treated with equal honor, with equal respect, as if they have equal value, as if they're equally important, as if they're equally necessary in the kingdom of God. Okay, but at the same time, he does say they're created male and female. So while they're equal, equally valuable to God, there's something uniquely valuable about us as women to God, right? We're equally valuable, but still we're uniquely valuable as women. He made us two kinds of people because he wanted both to display his image. We're different. You can tell that even, you know, just the way we're made. We are different. Men and women are made differently, physically, emotionally, always we are created differently. Um, and that doesn't diminish our value. And before we unpack kind of what those differences are, 
I want to camp out for just a second on the fact that that doesn't diminish our value because the world will tell you that equality means sameness. Okay, the world will tell you that to be equal, you have to be the same. When the feminist movement began back in the day, um, it was motivated, I think, by intentions that really reflected the heart of God, which is equality of man and woman. Um, Jesus really was the, the first feminist, the first one to walk in and say, hey, men and women are equal. They're equal in worth. They're equal in value. They can equally come to me. They don't need a mediator anymore. I will be that mediator for both man and woman. Okay, that's, that's Jesus' voice saying, hey, men and women are equal, and we have to start responding to them as if they're equal. But then this weird thing happened around the 1960s where, where people started to say that equality meant sameness, right? That, that in order for me to really be equal to a man, it must mean that I am able to look, act, do everything a man does. That's what it means for me to be equal. And the irony of that, first, it's crazy, but second, the irony of it is it actually makes me less valuable as a woman, because really what I'm saying is, I can have equal value to a man if I am a man. <laughs> then I have value. If I look like a man, then I have value. If I can do all the jobs a man can do, then I have value. Instead of saying, I'm equal to a man, and the things that distinguish me, the things that separate me, the things that are unique about me as a woman, those increase. They don't diminish my value. So in this feminist movement, really what we've done is say, men are here, and women have been treated down here, so what we need is to make women look like men so that they can be considered equal. Instead of elevating us to equality, but distinct, right? Um, I, I, I told you a little bit about my background. I came on staff at the Austin Stone six years ago, um, and I felt like I'm a woman who's sort of made wrong. Uh, I have a teaching gift, some prophecy, knowledge. Um, it, I, I just didn't feel like I fit in, you know, at like the bake sale thing, <laughs> like the prophet walking around. Um, so I, I felt a little bit like I was made wrong and hanging out with some of the guys that I work with, I felt a little bit like, okay, this, this is where I fit. I'm made more like these men. Um, and, and then I would have conversations with these men who are my elders and I work for an Acts 29 complementarian church, which, which believes that men and women are equal but distinct different roles. Um, and so there were places where they were like, hey, Fabs, why don't you go and teach this thing for women? Why don't you go encourage and love, develop women? And we'll go over here and you go over there. And I felt like I need to be over here because that's where all the cool stuff's happening. And I'm a teacher. That's where I belong, teaching people. The biggest platform you can ever give me. <laughs> that's what I thought. And I thought in that moment that these men who were talking to me didn't value women. That's how I felt. I felt like, gosh, why won't you let me come over here? Do you not value me? Do you not think I add something? And it was a work of those men and the Holy Spirit to challenge me and say, hey, Fabs, do you not value women? It's not, it's not these men that don't value women. It's you who think it's JV to hang out with them. It's you who think that, that men can handle deeper theology than women. It's not these pastors and it's not me. See you, Fabs. You're the one who thinks that women are somehow dumber than men, that their, their theology can't run as deep. It was challenging on my face, in my closet kind of moment, um, because I realized I, I was the one who didn't think men and women were equal in value. And the freedom that comes from embracing that we're equal and distinct means that I believe what's happening here today is as powerful as any pastor's conference that could ever happen in the world. I believe that you in this room can change the world. I believe you can be a part of ushering in the return of Christ. I don't think my giftedness is wasted here. I don't think the spirit of God is wasted here. 
I don't think this is JV. I don't think it's a secondary thing your church is doing. I think it's powerful and it matters. That's what it means to believe that men and women are distinct and equal. Um, I'm a blogger. I deal with a lot of kind of interesting blog dynamics. And this topic of conversation, biblical womanhood, it is all over the internet these days in the weird very small circle of women blogger theologian types um, which is a pretty small circle but we talk about it a lot and um, uh, most of those bloggers these days are, are either saying hey like we've got to start fighting for sameness we're becoming irrelevant because men and women aren't treated the same in the church um, and, and they've confused equality with sameness I, I believe we should fight for men and women to be treated equally in the church with equal honor and equal respect but I don't think that means sameness. Um, and the other side of that argument kind of comes up usually when people start disagreeing. Another voice will come out and says, hey guys, this is a secondary issue. It doesn't really matter. I don't want to get in a room and talk about biblical womanhood and how it plays out in the church. And I don't want to talk about roles. And I don't want to talk about that stuff because I think it causes disunity and it doesn't matter. And so I've had to wrestle really deeply with does it matter? Like, does it matter? Because if you, if you write a blog about it, people write really mean things about you. So is it worth it? I think it matters. And I don't think it matters because of the hierarchy at a church. And I don't think it matters primarily because of how you interact with your husband or your kids, although I think it has implications for those things. I think it matters because we're supposed to be image bearers of God. And if we look at each other and we don't like part of the way we reflect the glory of God, what we really mean is we don't like part of God. Because the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they're equal and they're not the same. And I'm not willing to pretend it doesn't matter. Because when I pray to the Father and I thank Him for the Son through the power of the Spirit, I believe that those three persons are doing different, awesome works in me. And I believe they submit to the Father. I believe they do that in joy. I don't believe there's anything lost in their value because of it. And my salvation depends on the fact that I believe that. That I believe that when Jesus was on the cross, He was God Himself. And that submitting to the Father didn't make Him lesser. Otherwise, how could He pay for the sins of all mankind? I think it has implications on our view of God. If, if we look at someone who's an image bearer of God and we see them submit to those around them and we think that's not beautiful, what we're saying is that part of the character of God is not beautiful. I think that matters. I think it matters who gets to define who we are. And I think we all want to know who we are. And so whether we talk about it on blogs or not, we want someone to tell us what we're supposed to be doing down here, right? I do. I want direction. I want clarity. I want someone to tell me who I am. I don't think I'm alone in that. So... Uh, that's why we talk about it, okay? I'm going to talk through the, those differences. What are they? We said equal is not the same as same. We're equal and distinct. We have differences. What are those differences? So let's start in Genesis 2. If you have your Bible, um, you can open it there. I'm not actually going to read it. I'm going to summarize it. Um, but this is, you got Genesis 1. It's this like, you know, overview, 30,000 foot level, here, what, here's what the deal is, and then God, he likes to tell stories over and over again in different ways, and so he tells the same story again in Genesis 2, but he zooms in, he gets the camera lens a little bit closer, and he tells you what actually happened when he created man and woman. So the first thing we see in Genesis 2 is that God gives the man life, like he takes this dust in the ground, and he creates man, not mankind, man, 
Adam. He creates him and he puts his mouth on Adam and he breathes life into him. And this is really different from anything God did with any of the other things that he created, right? He just spoke and they were, but there's this slowing down. There's this unique love that, co- that comes into play when he's creating people. He, he breathes life into man. Man was created first. Before Eve, Adam was created. Um, God could have created them at the same time. Right? He could have made him like an assembly line, just mixed up the body a little bit. But he didn't do that. He created man first. And he didn't just create man and then back-to-back create woman. He had a couple conversations with man before Eve existed. Um, first thing he did was he, he had made this garden, this Garden of Eden, and he took man and he put him in the garden. He said, hey, I want you to rule the garden. Go ahead and start naming the animals. Um, and so, so Adam is doing that. You know, that's kind of the first purpose that man has is working in this garden. That happens without Eve. And then God speaks to Adam and he gives him a command. He says, um, don't eat of that tree. You can eat everything that you see. I've made everything for you. You can enjoy all of it, all these trees, all this fruit. Just don't eat of this one tree. <coughs> Sorry for that lovely cough. <laughs> um, we never see God repeat that command to Eve. Okay, he never comes back and tells Eve that directly. We see him tell that to Adam and expect Adam to pass that information along to Eve, which Adam does. We know that because when the serpent comes to Eve, she regurgitates some kind of explanation for why they're not supposed to eat from that tree, although it's a little bit off. So that's what we see in this first account in Genesis 2, that man is made first, that he's given a purpose first, and that he is given a command first without Eve in existence. God created man to lead. Okay, to, to lead, to, to have this task that he's supposed to fulfill, that he's supposed to move forward, to move this kingdom of God forward, to obey God. That's his role. In, in this calling to fill the earth, make it fruitful, multiply, Adam's role, his way of doing that, is, in this instance, by naming the animals, right? And by working the garden. But in Genesis two eighteen, we see something God says, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Let's stop right there. God has created a lot of things, and he said they're good. What is it that makes creation good? What is it that would make him to make all these crazy things, like the Grand Canyon and the stars in the sky, and stop and say this is good? What makes something good? Such a weird word. I use it about 50 billion times a day when I eat. Every time I eat, I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. It's so good. (laughs) But I don't know what that word means. Uh, God means by it his goodness, his essence. Right? It's just what Romans 1 says, that in creation, his divine nature, his invisible attributes are clearly perceived. That's what makes them good. He's looking at them and he's like, that, that looks like me. It, it looks like I'm amazing and powerful and the best creator because I am. And that's goodness. To share that with the world is good. To see God is good. God is good. He's the only good that there is. And so what makes something good is that it displays him clearly. So God makes all these things that are good, and then he makes mankind, and he says it's very good. Because the personhood of God is seen more clearly in Adam and Eve than any other creature. Right? Because God is a person. He's not just this essence. He's not just this force. He has a personality. He has a will. He has resolve. He has a personhood. And that's what we get to display, what we get to reflect. And so it's very good. We're the crown and glory of God's creation. But not just one of us. 
right? Because it's not good for man to be alone. There's something in the creation of Adam that is lacking for God in the way he wants to display who he is to this world. That's why the distinction matters, because God created Adam. And if he wanted to display that he's a triune God and we need community, he could have made another Adam, if that's all he was trying to display. He could have just made a bunch of men, but he didn't, because there's something distinct in the differences between man and woman that display the personality, the personhood, the beauty, the glory of God, that it takes both of them for people to see him as he is. That it takes man and woman for people to see God as he is. And so when he creates woman, skip down a little bit there to to verse uh, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God establishes that it's not good to just have man. He wants a distinct, a a different kind of person in order to display who he truly is. And, And the role in the calling to be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply, the role in that for, for Adam is to work the ground of the garden. It's to toil. It's to do what God says. And for the woman, it's to help him. To help Adam do that. Okay? And when we hear that word helper, I know what it sounds like. I've thrown the Elizabeth Elliot book across the room. I, I know how that could feel to us. But, but we're Bible people who determine what's real based on what the scriptures say. And they use that word helper a lot throughout scripture. And they mostly use it to communicate the role of the Holy Spirit. So if you think about the father up there in heaven who's directing things, who's leading out, who's, who's the one who's giving his will. He wants his will to be done in all the earth. And you think of the son who's come down from heaven to, to do that will, to do the will of God. Those parts of God might be displayed in man, but there's this part that's lacking, which is that God just doesn't tell us to do something and then expect us to do it, but he helps us. He enables us and empowers us. When I was dead in my sin and transgression, I I wasn't going and then I needed someone to come along and kind of push me along towards God. I wasn't like, okay, God's all right, but I need a little encouragement, please, and then I'll move closer to God. It wasn't like that. The role of helper isn't like that. I was dead in my sin. I wasn't moving. I wasn't going anywhere. And the Spirit of God came and breathed life into my heart, and he made me alive while I was dead, and he enabled me. He empowered me to choose God. He enabled me to look at God and see him as beautiful. He opened the eyes of my heart so that I wanted God. He changed me. He, he, he made me a new creation, and then I moved towards God. Then I chose God after he gave me a new heart. That's what it means to help. It, it means to enable, it means to empower, it means that when people are stuck in their flesh and their sin, that we come along and we enable and we empower them to move forward, move this kingdom forward. And we're all trying to do the same thing here, man and woman. We're trying to fill the earth with worshipers of God, right? That's the Great Commission. It's the same as Genesis 1, fill the earth, go therefore and make disciples of every nation. I want this earth, God says, to be full of people who, who reflect who I truly am, worshipers of me, 
creatures who look at me and testify with every part of them that I am who I say I am. That's, that's what God wants. And he just gives us different roles inside of that. Women, the, the way that I want you to do that is by empowering, by enabling other people to live out the calling I've given them. I want you to call out who they really are. I want you to empower them to be all they're made to be. Because in doing that, you reflect me. Because I don't just come down there and do it for you. I don't just execute the task. We could be home like that if God would just go make disciples. <laughs> but he wants to do it through us. And that's the part we get to reflect. And that's not a secondary, it's not a secondary role in the kingdom of God. To make disciples through people. To, to rebuild the Garden of Eden through people. That's what God's doing. That's what we're doing. And, and sure, maybe some days it feels like it would be nice if we just got to go and build the garden the way we want to build it. But God's character wouldn't be clearly seen in that because that's not how he does it. And we're image bearers, and, and the way we reflect God's image is different than the way men do, and it's supposed to be for the glory of God. That's what it means to be a helper. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. Good. So, it works this way in all the church. We know this, that the, we have this one ultimate calling to build up the body of Christ, and then we have different roles inside of it, and the different role doesn't change our value. Okay? Evangelist. Teacher. Hospitality. All these gifts, compassion, mercy, uh, administration. God made us so we'd each take different roles to move this body forward. It's the same with men and women. And if we start to talk about sameness, meaning equality, then what we really mean is that we want to have a body that's really just like all a hand. And if our body was all a hand, we're not going to go anywhere. If we want the body to grow, it means embracing the part we were made to play. Embracing the part that we were designed to be. It's going to be freedom for us and it's going to help this body move forward. Okay? So, uh, last couple of things about this. Um, I think there are three things that I, I want to say about our response to this and, and what helps us get on board with this. The first thing is that we are creatures. Um, I know it doesn't feel like you're a creature. I know it feels like you kind of run your little world. Right, that everyone depends on you, that um, all the other creatures around you, your kids, your coworkers, your husband, that they all need you kind of as the creator to hold them together. I know it feels like, at least in your own life, that you need to hold yourself together, but you're really just a creature. Um, I mentioned my dog Toby because I knew I was going to tell this story about him, and I know this makes me sound like a weird dog person. I'm really not a weird dog person, but anytime I'm going out of town, I like to lay on the floor with Toby. It's my dog. He's a, he's a bassador. He's half basset hound, half lab. He's weird. He uh, he has the body of a lab. When he's lying down, you think he's a lab, and then he stands up and he has like little legs. It's really sad. Um, when I used to take him to the vet when he was a puppy, they used to be like, he looks so sad. And I'd be like, no, it's just his face. It just looks like that. Um, but every time before I go out of town, I lay on the floor with Toby and I look at him and he's got this black fur and then he's got these weird little like brown furry parts around his eyes that I really like. And he won't look me in the eye, you know, because it's a weird thing dogs do with submission. So he's just kind of like <laughs> looking around. He's so weird. Um, and I'll pet him and I'll tell him, Toby, you're such a creature. 
Like, you're just such a little creature. I can't get over it. Because when I try to create things, um, like if you gave me a piece of clay and you said create something, I'd make you, if I had a pottery wheel and an instructor for like 10 months, I'd make you like a little vase that's like empty and silly and looks like a three-year-old made it. But God made Toby. That's his creation. He makes this thing that like breathes. Even if you've got the best artist in all the world, you told him, hey, create something like Toby. They couldn't do it. And Toby is not complicated. He's a simple fellow, but we still couldn't make him. Like we couldn't make him with his little fur that moves up and down with his breath and his weird obsession with me. Like his something like love, but weird. (laughs) We couldn't make a creature that longed the way that he does. That gets sad when I get sad. He's a creature, but he's complicated. And we're really just like Toby. We're just little creatures. And we're complicated. We have dreams and we have hopes and we have fears, but we're still just creatures. God's just a really good creator. We're still really people that came from clay. God took clay and he made Adam. And then we're made from the clay that Adam was made from by taking the rib out of him. We're just made out of mud. And he made this. And we're complicated and we have personalities, but we're still just creatures. And at the end of the day, doesn't the creator get to determine who we are and what we're for? He made us. And who are we to answer back to him and be like, ah, actually, I think you got it wrong with me. I think I'm actually made for this. No, no, no. We were made by a creator, and he knows best what we're for. And honestly, like, I don't know if this is just me, but I really think that's, like, the best news in the world. Because I am a wreck of a human being. And I want somebody so badly to tell me who I am. And I feel in my heart, I feel the truth that I'm not independent I need someone to look at me and tell me what I'm made for and who I am and that I'm beautiful and that I have worth and that I have value and I'm hungry for that. And if we don't turn and we don't eat the scriptures to get that from God, who is the person we're made to get that from, then we're going to turn to everyone else who will talk to us. We're going to end up being created by the world because we're so desperate for someone to tell us who we are because that's how we're made. You're made to need someone outside of you to tell you who you are. And that's God. He made you to be dependent on him. He made you to need that. You're shaped. Not a person in this room is shaped independently. You've been shaped by everything everyone has told you about who you are your whole life. And God just wants to tell you a different story. He wants you to to embrace your creatureness. To embrace your dependence. This is the first thing. is Remember that you're a creature. The second thing is, remember that you were created for the glory of God. Right? Sounds like a, an abstract churchy time t- term, the glory of God, but it just means for God to display who he really is, for him to show off his beauty and his power and his worth and his might. Um, that's why you're made. And don't you want to do whatever, you're, whatever it looks like in order to display who God is? Somewhere in your heart. Probably not right on top. Right on top, you probably don't want that. But way down deep in the new creature heart that you have, you want to be a part of displaying who God is, right? I want that. I want to be a part of displaying who God is. I've been uh, reading Ephesians 2 in kind of my personal time with the Lord, and it's been kind of messing me up. You've got, like, these people, me being them, (laughs) who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and they walk according to the course of this world. They just follow the world wherever it wants to go. 
following the prince of the power of the air. I don't even know what that description of Satan means, but that's what I was doing. I was following the prince of the power of the air. I was dead. But God, being rich in mercy, he, he, while I was still dead, he made me alive in Christ. He came in, and I wasn't on life support. I was totally dead, and he, just like he did in Genesis 1, he quickened my heart. He, he breathed life into me. He made me alive with him, and he did it through power, and he did it through grace, and he did it, according to Ephesians 2, he did it 100% by grace because we are his workmanship. That's the end of of that opening of Genesis 2. God did this. You were dead in your sins. He made you alive together in in Christ. By grace you have been saved for because we are his workmanship. We're his piece of art that display his power, that display his grace. That's what you were made for. That's why he set up salvation the way he did. So that nobody is going to look and think you're cool. They're going to think God is cool. Because he took you while you were dead and he made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, but for you are his workmanship. And he's prepared good works for you to walk in. And that's all biblical womanhood is. It's the good works for you to walk in. It's the things he's prepared to display his workmanship. If you think of an artist who creates this great painting, he doesn't just leave the paintings on, on the floor in his workshop, right? He goes into the art gallery and he, he prepares this place on the wall with the perfect lighting, perfect way to display who he is as a creator, who he is as an artist. That's what God did with the biblical womanhood. He made you and he saved you the way he saved you and, and you're his workmanship. You display his power and his grace and his might and his goodness, his mercy. You display all of that. You display all that even if you're sitting in the floor in his workshop. But then he prepares these good works for you. He prepares this, this biblical womanhood for you to walk in so that he can display it even more clearly so he can show off you and, and in turn him as creator. That's what God does. We're created beings, and we're created for his glory. And the last thing that I want to say on this is that usually the pushback I get when I teach on this is, you know, women being like, I, when you say helper, do you mean that I'm supposed to lay down my dreams, my personality, the way I'm made, all these things to help someone else live out their dreams, the way they're made, their calling, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. Um, and I don't, I don't say that flippantly. I don't say it lightly. I have dreams. Everyone in this room has dreams. I have a, a friend right now who's wrestling with it. They've had their first child, and she wants so badly to have another child before her, her child is, before the age gap is really big, and she wants to have a child she wants to adopt, and her, her husband doesn't feel like that's what God's calling them to do. It's not a little thing for her to lay down that dream. For her to trust her husband, it's, it's not a little thing. I have dreams. I have dreams of being a writer and teaching about God and all these crazy dreams. And if I met a guy one day who came into my life and said, hey, I need you to lay down all of your dreams to help me fulfill mine. That'd be hard. But I kind of did that. I did that. 11 years ago, when I lay on the floor in the middle of a worship conference and I told Jesus that I was his, 
And I told him that all of my personality and all of my dreams and all the things that made me who I, who I was, they were all his. And now I'm not going to spend my life living out my dreams. Now I'm going to spend my life living out his. If you're a Christian, you already did this. It's game over. You already gave up your life. You already gave up your dreams. You already gave up your identity to fulfill someone else's calling. His name is Jesus. And whether that comes down through a husband or whether it comes down through a boss or whether it comes down through circumstance or pain or loneliness or whatever, we trust in a God who is sovereign, who holds the hearts of men in his hand. The only person you have to submit your life and your dreams to is Jesus Christ. And you did that. You did that. This isn't new information. This isn't new news. This is what it means to to be a Christian. And the craziest thing is... Then laying down your dreams and laying down your personality and your life and all the things you think make you you to belong to Christ, you don't become this cookie-cutter person. You become more you than you ever were before. It takes this version of Fabs that there was, and then Fabs is like, okay, I guess I give all that version to you. And then he takes the Spirit of God, and he takes all the things that were real about Fabs, and he puts them together, and he makes this new creature It's more fabs than fabs ever was before. And it's more like God than fabs ever was before, for sure. And that's who I am. I haven't lost anything. I've gained everything. Okay. I think we're going to do some panel questions in a second to help you all process this. But just before we do that, if if it's okay, if you guys take like two minutes, I'm just going to give you kind of two minutes at the end of every session to do this. And just jot down like any bullet points of things that you think God wants you to press into today. Things that I said or that he whispered while I was talking or while you were daydreaming about your life or whatever. Um, Things that you think you need to process more later. Okay? Go ahead and do that. Thank you. Allergies. Death. They are death. Tuesday this week, I was like, no, this is, this can't be allergies. This must be the end of me. (laughs) I thought I had the plague, but I did not. I'm here. I stand before you. Um, Awesome. Okay. There's so many things I want to talk about right now, like how great the snacks are on the table and also this Brittany mic. I forgot to talk about both of those things before, but I'm not going to talk about those things. I'm going to talk about these things. I love this, but it makes me want to dance. Okay, I'm getting a little too comfortable up here. When I start dancing, it's always at the beginning of the end. Okay, so um, what we're going to do for the rest of our sessions today is talk about the implications, basically, of biblical womanhood. They didn't like my dancing. They all just left. They were scared that I was actually going to dance. I'm not really going to dance. Okay. Um, the implications of biblical womanhood on our lives and what it looks like, what it actually looks like in the practical every day, what, what we do with it, you know, Monday morning, Sunday afternoon, how it affects us. And um, every time I teach on this, you know, I, I dig into the scriptures. I, I want to be somebody who teaches what's in God's word. And when it comes to biblical womanhood, I, it, it gets hard because there are two clear biblical external implications for biblical womanhood, but there's only two of them. Um, One is talking through the context of marriage, what it looks like in a marriage, and that you see that in Ephesians, you see that in Corinthians, um, Paul talking through how this biblical womanhood plays out in a marriage between a husband and a wife, and the other is in church leadership, how it plays out in that. Paul talks about that in Timothy and Titus. Um, 
And so when, when we just have those two examples in scripture, there's a tendency within us. The, the first tendency we have is to just kind of go crazy and add our own prescriptions of what this looks like. Well, here's how it plays out in the workplace, by the way. It should look like this. And here's how it plays out with the president of the United States. He can only be a man. That's how it plays out. I don't, I don't know how it plays out in those situations. I can't, I can't bank anything on it because God hasn't written it in his word for me and I, I need him to write it down so that I can bank on it. Um, so I'm not going to teach through all that. I don't, I'm not saying that's not right. I'm just saying I'm not going to teach through that. And the other tendency that we have is to be like, okay, because it's only those two explicit examples, that's what biblical womanhood is. And we reduce it to those two roles. We reduce it to those two examples. And so Fabs, who is single, if I wasn't a part of a church, my womanhood means nothing to me. I, could, I might as well be a man, right? Because I'm not married, and let's say I wasn't in a church body, so there's no implication for me being a woman. And I, I don't think that's what God's talking about in Genesis 1 and 2. When he talks about the unique, um, the way that his image is reflected by manhood and womanhood, when he gives them these, these roles of executing his tasks, of leading and helping, I, I don't think he's saying that our biblical manhood and womanhood doesn't impact us at all unless we're in certain roles, unless we're in certain situations. It's not like a hat you put on. It's not based on stage of life and circumstances. Hear me say this, that biblical womanhood is an identity in your life that is far deeper than your role as a mom. Or a wife. Those are temporal roles. You won't be married in heaven. And you're not going to be a mom in heaven. You're going to be a child of the living God. That's who you're going to be. And you're going to be a female child of the living God. That's your identity. Everything else is, um, is a role you're given here to live out that identity. But the identity doesn't change. It's who you are. It's not based on circumstance. It's not based on stage of life. It's your identity that, that you are a, a biblical woman. If you're in Christ Jesus, that's who you are. Um, I, I think a lot of times, you know, if you're like me and um, the woman who sat here on the panel, I can't, I don't know your name. I've, Jennifer, okay. Um, loved everything you were saying. That's how I feel all the time. Just like this made wrongness, like I don't fit the mold of what a biblical woman is supposed to be. Um, and I think what Jennifer was saying was totally profound. That who says what a biblical woman is supposed to be? God says. He says that you're supposed to take on a role in empowering and enabling others in order to reveal the glory of God. That's what it means to be a biblical woman. That's it. Um, and everybody in this room, whether it plays out like teaching tennis or um, having spiritual gifts that are teaching and prophecy, everyone in this room has felt at some point like they're made wrong. I know that. I don't believe there's a woman in this room who's never looked at another woman's body or her body and not thought, I'm not, I'm not made right. There's something wrong. I'm not really a woman. My boobs are too big or my boobs are too small. I'm not, I'm not really feminine. My thighs are too big to be feminine. They're masculine. It's not true. You are made right. You are made right and you have this flesh and this sin that has distorted you. But it is not who you are. You know, Michelangelo, um, when he created David, it was a sculpture that he made. Um, the way that he described what happened, I have a quote written down here somewhere. He says, I saw the angel in the marble 
and I carved until I set him free. He saw this piece of rock, and the way he describes it, it's not that he was like, okay, I can create out of this an angel, but that he saw inside that rock there was an angel, and he carved until the angel was free. I love that. That's what sanctification is. That you and I, in the moment when the Spirit of God came inside of us and gave us a new heart and made us alive while we were dead in our sins and transgressions, we became this new creature, this glorious image bearer, this, this, this being that is able to, to rightly reflect true things about God. But we have this flesh wrapped up around us, tangled around us, choking our life out. And the goal of biblical womanhood is not that you become something you're not. It's that you take off the things that you're not already. And then then biblical womanhood is all that's left. It's who you are. It's not something you have to try to make yourself be. It's not a, a role you have to step into. It's not something you have to work at. The work is taking off the parts that aren't who you are. The flesh and the sin. And I think, I think that that's an important distinction because I think it's one that's made really clearly biblically. In, in Romans 7, when Paul is talking about this battle that he has between his flesh and his spirit, this new creature that's inside of him, he is very clear, I think he says it three times, that, that this flesh is not who he is. It's no longer I, but it's sin in me. It's no longer I, it's, it's not me. And as women, I, th- I think we gotta, we gotta get that one settled in our mind. Your sin is not who you are anymore. It, it is, it's who you used to be. There was a time when you were over here dead in your trespasses and sins and your very identity was by nature a child of wrath. You were sin itself. You were under Adam. You were infected to the very core of who you are with, with a sin in nature. But then God came and his power and his majesty, he made you alive. He made you something new. He made you a child of Jesus infected with the righteousness of Christ. And now you still have this flesh tangled up so that when people look at you, they don't always see you as you are. And when you look at you, you don't always see you as you are. But biblical womanhood, it's who you are underneath. All your weird quirks and all the things that you think make you not a biblical woman, very few of them are actually real. Mostly you're, you're just this, this jar of clay that's unique and it's different that doesn't have to look the same as any other woman in order to be a biblical woman. It just has to hold the spirit of God inside of it clearly. So, so that's what we're going to talk about. I'm not going to talk a ton today about practical implications. I'm going to talk about your heart. I'm going to talk about the heart that I, I think is inside of every person in here who is in Christ Jesus already. And just talk about setting that heart free, taking off the weights and the sin that entangle and, and running this race before us. Okay? So I have a list of at character, like Rhonda. It says Rhonda somewhere on the page. That's all I know. Okay. I'll, let's start. There we go. <coughs> There's a book called Feminine, Free, and Faithful. And this I actually stole from a book by someone else, by John Piper, um, a book called Manhood and Womanhood. But he has this section at the beginning where he talks through traits that we associate with biblical womanhood and traits that we don't. <coughs> so sorry. So the first category there, that bullet point, are, are traits that we would most of us say are positive traits. And that second category are traits that most of us would say are negative traits. And the goal of today is to hopefully help us see that all of our negative traits are not necessarily true things about us, but they're, they're, they're ways that the true things about us have been distorted. 
right? So we are these true things, and we look like we're these false things, but it's only because of the way our flesh distorts the true things about who we are. That's what redeeming means. It means getting back to the truth and bringing it out, pulling it out, okay? Not just scrapping it and starting over, but taking what's good and real and restoring, redeeming. So what I want y'all to do is just on your own really fast, just look through that list of words and just make a note of any that that you feel like to find you. No one's going to look at this. It doesn't have to be right or wrong. Just in your heart of hearts, who you feel like you are. I think when I look at that list, the first thing that I know is distorted is that I I look at myself through the eyes of my flesh. It's really hard for me to circle any of the words in that top bullet point. It's really hard for me to honestly, legitimately think that that's who I am. And it's because I really understand Romans 1 through 3 that tells me that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. I get that. I believe that with every part of me. I've seen that play out in my life. But I I don't really believe Romans 5 through 8, that I was made alive in Christ, that, that we became one, that there's this union, there's this mystery, that the old flesh inside of me was nailed to the cross, that it was crucified, that I became something new, something different, something righteous, and something beautiful. And the reason that I don't believe that is not because um, I don't trust the Word of God. It's because I trust my perception of reality more than I trust the Word of God, right? I know that it says that, but my experience of myself, when I look inside myself, I don't feel like I look that different than I did before I was a Christian, I feel like I still wrestle. I feel like I'm still all those things I don't want to be. I actually feel the more I I walk with Jesus that I'm worse somehow than I was before. I think that, that we have to become people who trust what the Bible says about us more than we trust our own perception of ourselves. Because sanctification is this weird, crazy animal, right? It's weird. I, there's a, a zoo in Austin. It's called the Austin Rescue Zoo. I'm from Austin, by the way. Um, 
Austin rescues you. It's awful. I mean, it is awful. It's all these animals that have been rescued from being tortured. And so all the fun of going to the zoo and you're like, oh, look at the majesty and the awe of the lion. It's just this really sad, like the lion's mane has been cut off. And so you just stand there and you're like, this is really sad. <laughs> I hate this. Um, I went with a friend and we just walked around all day and it's so depressing. You're just like, why do people do this to animals, you know? Uh, it's nice because they've been rescued, but it's still sad. And you get to the monkey cage, and I love monkeys. And me and my friend were like, where is this? These are monkeys that were lab monkeys. So they've been kept in these like tiny little cages all of their lives. And now they have this enclosure that's like, I mean, it's huge. It's filled with trees. They finally get to live like monkeys, you know. So we're looking for these monkeys. Where are they? Where are they? We can't see any. And then there's this little kid, and he starts pointing to the corner of the cage and saying, there's the monkey. I found the monkey. In the corner of the cage, like huddled up against the bars, hunched over, these monkeys are just like sitting there rocking. I was like, what is going on, monkeys? Don't you know that you've been set free? Like, can't you look around and see that this is different than the cage you're in? But for that monkey, it doesn't look any different at all. Right, because from where they're standing, the world looks exactly the same as it did before they were set free. And to actually move like a monkey is painful for them. Their, 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 their bones have bent into the position that they've held for so long that for them to actually straighten up and swing through the trees, it would hurt so much. And even though we know that that's what they were made to do and that they'd be happier if they could do it, they don't know that and they're not willing to fight through the pain. And I, I think that is the picture of us. You are set free. You have the spirit of God inside of you who, who has defeated sin and Satan and death. You've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness. You've been placed in the kingdom of light. You are no longer a slave to sin. I don't care how it feels. You're free. But to move in that freedom is going to take time. It's going to take therapy. It's going to be painful. To learn to move your spirit and your being the way you were designed to move it is going to feel unnatural at first. To live in biblical womanhood, it's going to feel like it's not who you are, but it is. And if you, if you stay pressed up against the, the cage, if you, if you let your eyes tell you what's true, then it will seem like nothing has changed. But it's an act of faith to believe that you have been taken out of that cage, that you're in a new place. You are now in a place where you can move in freedom. So that's all we're going to kind of unpack, what that might look like, what it might look like to be who you're made to be. We're going to talk about a trait that I think is something that God has made us to be, something that is in us, something that we've been set free in Christ to be. And then we're going to talk about how it's been distorted. And so maybe some of the sin tendencies you struggle with the most Maybe they're just a distorted version of this really gloriously beautiful thing about you. Okay? So the first one we're going to talk about is being passive versus affirming. Um, there's a lot of verses there that are in my notes, but we'll get to those in just a moment. I like this thing that I can see it up here. That's neat. Um, sorry. So... Um, when we talk about biblical womanhood, that, you, that you're designed to be this helper, perhaps being affirming is kind of the, the, the easiest way I know how to describe that. Affirming, meaning that you look at somebody who's in Christ, and you see who they are inside, the new creature. You see who they are through the Spirit of God, 
and you, you call that out in them. You enable them, you empower them, you, you, you tell them true things about themselves so that they can walk forward in what God has for them. So that this great commission, so that the calling that God has given us all can be completed. Okay, your goal, their goal is the same, but your role is different. You're trying to empower them to do what they're made to do. Okay, it's uh, the way I wrote it there is affirming, is actively pursuing, encouraging, and empowering others to live out their calling. This is what you do with your husband. This is what you do with the elders at your church. And this is honestly, if you're living in a heart of biblical womanhood, this is what you do with every person you meet. That you call out in them the angel inside the statue. You call them out to be who they're made to be. Um, and I think that gets distorted by our flesh in two ways. Um, when it's distorted, it becomes this passivity, right? This responsiveness that's not based on truth. But I think the two reasons, the two ways that happens is first, either you look at somebody and instead of seeing the spirit of God inside of them or the, the blank slate in which the power of God couldn't move, right? What you see when you look at them is their flesh, that's what you see. Or, another option, what you see when you look at someone else, you see through the lens of your flesh. So you may see how gloriously God is using them. You may see how, how beautifully they were made to run this race, but you couldn't possibly call that out in them because you're so insecure. Because when you look at yourself, all you see is wretchedness and weakness, and so you're jealous. Or you feel hatred or you just feel nervous and intimidated because you're not like that. You see them through the lens of your flesh. Over here, you see them through the lens of their flesh. Sure, you're gonna call them out, but it's gonna be reminding them of all that's wrong with them, pointing out all the things that they're doing wrong, all the things that are keeping them from moving forward in their lives because that's what you see when you see them is all that's wrong, okay? Um, over here, you see them through the lens of your flesh, but either way, the consequence, the result is the same. You're not affirming. You're not helping them. You're not proactively seeking to encourage people, empower them towards what God has for them, because either you're viewing them through the lens of, of your flesh over here or their flesh. Either you're seeing all that's wrong with them or you're seeing right things about them, but you can't possibly empower them because you're seeing it through the lens of what's wrong with you. Does that make sense? So that, that's going to have a couple of implications um, for us. And, and the easiest way to kind of test which category you, you fall in, honestly, is to look at your communication style. It's going to tell you a lot about yourself. Um, if you're seeing someone through the lens of their flesh, if your primary bent when you look at someone is to see their flesh, to see their sin, to not see the new creature they are, then it's going to play out in, for some of you, being direct. You might be very direct communicator. You might be very direct. It might seem like you're empowering because you're not scared to call someone out on their sin. But your motivation really is to point out their sin. Your motivation at the end of the day is to get to the negative thing. And maybe even if you play the sandwich game where you'll be like, I'll say a couple of nice things, then the thing I really need to talk about, then I'll say the nice things again. But your goal really is to talk about the negative thing. That's not what affirming means. Affirming will include helping someone see their sin. It will include that. But not for the goal of them seeing their sin, but for the goal of calling out who you actually believe they are. This, this new creation, this glorious creature, the goal will be a positive communication, not a negative one. For some of you, you do the same thing. You see the person through the lens of their flesh. You see what's wrong with them, but it doesn't play out in being direct. It, it plays out in being really passive aggressive, right? 
Maybe you make jokes. They do the same thing. I do this with my roommate. She has the same patterns that I notice in her. I see in her. (coughs) I don't want to be aggressive, so what I do is I kind of make a joke when there's other people around. Be like, okay, because you're probably going to flake on that anyway. It's not a joke. It's something I see that's her flesh that I want to call out, but I know it's not right because I know my heart isn't right, so I call it out in a super passive-aggressive way. Yeah. Some of you do this through nagging your spouses. Some of, some of you do this through implying. Some of you do it through just indirect communication. When your spouse comes home or your friend comes home and they're like, hey, are you frustrated? Nope. And the reason you say it like that is because you want them to know that you are and you want them to do the guesswork and the math of figuring out what they did wrong. And all you're going to do by doing that is make them sit there and think about their flesh all day, never believing that there's anything in them other than that. All of those communication styles point to a heart that sees someone through their flesh. Some of you may play out in not communicating with someone at all. Maybe you're not friends with women in this room because when you look at them, you see their flesh. Maybe you try to avoid them. You deny the role you were made for, that empowering and enabling them because you're looking at them through the lens of their flesh. Okay? On the flip side, those of you who maybe see other people as they were made to be, but, but you look through the lens of your flesh. So there's this insecurity. There's this struggle inside of you. And so again, that could play out in the same way that could, that could play out in the not communicating. You don't, you don't want to talk to someone who, who you think is so much better than you. You don't want to talk to them and be reminded of your own insecurity. You don't want them to judge you. You don't want them to think something negative about you. You're scared of them. They have too much power over you, too much ability to confirm or deny who you are, so you you can't communicate directly. At the end of the day, what you care about more than affirming and encouraging that person, what you care about more than you care about loving them well, is everybody in the room feeling comfortable. Everybody in the room feeling loved becomes more important than actually loving. Right? So you don't talk to them. You don't challenge them to be a better version of themselves because you're so insecure that that you can't see that there's anything inhibiting who they are, okay? Or one of the biggest ways I see this play out is is, um, kind of taking on that victim waiting mentality. There are a lot of you that even when I started talking about affirming, your first thought was, when was the last time someone affirmed me? When was the last time someone called out good things in me? It happens every second of your life by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. You have been affirmed by your Creator, and if His voice is not loud enough, no voice in this room is going to settle your doubts. No one in here can affirm you in such a way that it adds value or worth to you, and you can't affirm anyone in such a way that it adds value and worth to them that has to come from God. And what you call out in someone, it has to be the Spirit of God calling out to the Spirit of God in them. That's the only way this thing works because, because human words can't settle a soul. They weren't made to. And if you're looking to the people around you, if you're looking to your husband or your coworkers or your boss or the women in this room to give you value and worth, to make you believe that you have a purpose here, You're going to be waiting a long time. They're just creatures. They don't know anything. At the end of the day, you have a creator who's told you that he's made you for purpose. He's not wasting you. He's not wasting a drop of you. He won't. His glory's on the line. 
And he has affirmed you in those moments where you feel insecure, where you feel like you need to be affirmed. Go to the word. Get on your knees. And you're, remind yourself that if Jesus dying on the cross isn't enough evidence of love, then surely a girl sitting across from you from coffee telling you she likes you isn't going to fill that hole. If, if the Son of God on the cross can't fill that hole, nobody in this room can Okay, so go to God with that desire. So, kind of an illustration of what this passive versus affirming looks like. Um, I think to be affirming is to be proactive. Okay, I think it, it means pursuing people. It means calling out in them who God made them to be. And that, that means talking a lot about God in them. Okay, it doesn't mean telling them how great they are. It means telling them how great God is. Okay, it means telling them that, that even when they feel weak, he's strong. That even though, yeah, they struggle with sin, that that God's grace is sufficient. It means telling them the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that God is working towards those who love him. It means calling them to believe in the power of God, not the power of themselves. And you seeing that in them, seeing them as the creatures they're going to be, and it takes, honestly, it takes a work of imagination. It, It takes letting the eyes of your heart look at someone and not the eyes on your face, right? It takes looking at them and imagining them as they're going to be in eternity when they're made perfect in Jesus and and spurring them onto that, pushing them forwards towards that. It's going to involve directly communicating with them. When when you see something in their life that's keeping them from being this person, it's going to mean talking to them about it, but not for the sake of pointing out what they do wrong, but for the sake of empowering them to move forward. Okay? Uh, I have a coworker. I... I work on staff at Stone, I said that, and I have three girls that I work with really closely, and one of them, she came on staff about a year after me. She was the first kind of other girl on staff that I became friends with, and she was just, I mean, I I sat in the interview with her when she was first being interviewed to work at our church, and I walked out and I said, that is the most secure woman I've ever seen. I just never seen anything like it. She was super confident, comfortable. She knew who she was. She knew who she was in Christ. She didn't need to apologize for anything about herself. Um, She could repent freely at the same time. She wasn't scared to say she made a mistake. Um, We've worked closely together for five years now, and I always use her as an example of this because I've really never seen anything like what she can do. She has a spiritual gift of encouragement, so that goes hand in hand with this. But we'll sit in a meeting with a girl, and I'll be listening to the words that Teresa is saying. And I promise you, textbook words, if you just listen to what she said, any girl that she was saying those words to would just break down and cry. Like, be like, I hate myself. But that's never what happens. Every single time, they're like, this is so encouraging. Like, tell me more about who I could be. Tell me more about, about the race that I could be running. Tell me more about how God could be using me. Because when she's talking about the, the sin that entangles, she's painting a picture for them of who they are underneath that and who she wants to see in them, who she wants everyone to be able to see in them, how they display the character of God, and she invites everyone into that. I've seen her do this with a million girls, and she does it with me, but she's sneaky because she knows that I see it. And I'll always be like, oh, you're doing that thing right now. You're affirming me, but really you're talking about I'm a sinner. And she's like, I'm not talking about that. I think you're awesome, you know. She's just such an encourager. Um, But about, I guess, two years, maybe three years ago now, I became a deacon at our church. uh, 
And part of that process is that you sit down with two other people and you walk through this pretty intense character analysis assessment thing, which I hate, that kind of stuff. So I was, first round of that process, I was tapped out. Second round, I went to my boss and I said, hey, I actually, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't want to do this. And he's like, well, you're functioning in that role in our church. So this, this isn't about a title. It's not about passing a test. This is who you already are according to what God is doing. So, okay, I go through the process, but I'm going to make sure that the people I do my character assessments with already know everything about me. So it's my friend Teresa and it's my roommate Val. They know everything about me. There's nothing that can possibly come up in this character assessment. I've prepared. I always try to get my sin out there up front so that no one can call me out on it. Let everyone know I know first that I'm the worst. So <clears throat> sitting there at breakfast with these two girls who know me inside and out. And um, I, I put all the sin on the table so that nobody can point at anything in me. And we're almost done. I think we're done. We've been there for like an hour and a half. And I'm like, we're done here. And we asked for the check. And I'm sitting there at the table. I'm looking at my coffee. I'm thinking how pleased I am that we got through this and how thankful I am for friends that know me so well. And I'm thankful that the Spirit of God has revealed to me who I am so that nobody else has to tell me. And <laughs> in that moment, he's like, hey, can I ask you one more question? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. Like, you talk a lot about your sin. You talk a lot about how you feel, you know, disqualified for God to use you for life and ministry. You talk a lot about how you know that you're the worst of all sinners. You, you talk about yourself. You use the words adulterous whore. You think that's who you are? And the little waiter's like, awkward. Just <laughs> turns around and walks away. <laughs> And I look at Teresa and with every theological thing that I know to be true and all the things that I bank my life on and everything that I would tell another girl out the window, I just tell her the truth, which is, yeah. Yeah, that's who I think I am. That's who I think I am. It's there every time I get up to teach. It's there every time I say the word God. This feeling of inadequacy, this feeling that I'm a mess, that I've ruined everything in my life. And I know that God's grace is sufficient or I wouldn't stand here and teach. I mean, when I, when I stand up here, I'm literally standing on the gospel. If it's not true, then I'm not here. But that doesn't mean I embrace it in my heart. It doesn't mean I believe it so deeply that I'm not still ashamed of who I am. And in that moment, uh, Teresa just looked at me and she said, I need you to know that that's not who God says that you are anymore. It's not who you are. You're his kid, and he's crazy about you. And that's what he sees when he looks at you. And more than that, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's who he's making you look more like, but that's who you already are to him. And I know this seems like a sweet thing that helps you teach feeling this inadequate or whatever, but at the end of the day, every time you say that, Fabs, Every time you do, you tell me that my, my Savior's blood is not sufficient. I need you to stop telling me that. And I was like, Teresa, <laughs> I want to stop telling you that. And it was this glorious moment of repentance. And it wasn't just her patting me on the back and telling me I'm, I'm better than I think. It was her reminding me that even when I say that, 
even when I feel insecure, I'm testifying something untrue about God, and that's a sin to be repented of. That he's worth more than that. But that's not the vessel I carry in this jar of clay. I carry a savior who's sufficient, who's strong, and who saves. And that's what it looks like to affirm. Teresa, guys, you should meet her one day. You will in heaven. She's the best. The way that she's able to do that is that she doesn't fake it. You know? She actually believes the Spirit of God is powerful. Um, She believes that our sin can be overcome. She believes that we can be changed by the Spirit of God. She's not afraid to talk to people because she doesn't think their case is hopeless. She doesn't think who they feel like they are today is the best that God has for them. She believes there's something better. She believes they can, they can treasure God more fully. They can run faster and freer. And so that's what she calls out. And more than that, she's always reminding me, this is what God does with us, right? He doesn't just kind of change us and mold us as we go. <coughs> he talks to us directly through his word, right? He cuts between marrow and, and our soul with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God in his hand, and he convicts us of sin, He's not scared to call out sin in your life. He's not scared to point out your failures and your weaknesses. You know why? Because you're not standing on those things anymore, right? Your, your resume, all the things that are wrong on your resume, it doesn't, God can point them out all day long and you can look at them all day long without being discouraged and without being in despair because that resume is Christ's resume now and you get his. So you can work through your sin and your flesh knowing that's not who you are anymore. You are the righteousness of Christ now. Um, yeah, and, and I think like that, that's the part that we get to reflect when we do this well, when we affirm well. God, who doesn't you know, point out all our sins at once, right? That would be overwhelming. But he is working on something in you right now, a specific thing. And our goal as women is, is to figure out what is that thing that God is doing in that person? Who, who is he, he revealing them to be underneath that flesh? And how can I get on board with what God is already doing and call that out of them? That's what it means to be affirming. And we're going to talk through one more, coveting contentment. But before we do, just take two minutes, passive, affirmative, affirming, not affirmative, affirming. Write down a note if you feel like God's pushing something on your heart that you want to process later. Just jot that little note. It'll give you two minutes. Okay, coveting versus contentment. So I believe the heart of every woman in this room who's in Christ that you're designed to reflect something really beautiful and true about, about God, which is that he's trustworthy, which means that you can trust him, that you believe that he is in control of this world, that he's sovereign over every molecule in this room, that he's working all things out for your good and his glory, and you believe that, you you reflect that about him, that you don't need to take action for yourself because you trust him. Okay, that's why he made us to display this contentment, and when that gets distorted, it becomes this coveting. Okay, so contentment is, is active. It's just like what we were talking about with being affirming. It's an active, it's action. Contentment is not just receiving your circumstances. Contentment is believing that your circumstances, what's around you, the way the world looks, is in the hands of a sovereign God and that it's an opportunity to learn him as savior. Okay, that it's an opportunity to learn him more clearly, to know what the the curves of his face look like. It's an opportunity to get more God, okay? 
That's what contentment means. And coveting, on the flip side, believes that your circumstances are sabotaging your life. Right? That, that God isn't in control. That, that your circumstances need to change in order for you to honor God. That your circumstances need to change in order for you to be happy, for you to be content, for you to obey his commands. That's what coveting believes. Okay? So, let me kind of paint a picture of it like this. Like, when hard things come, whether they're um, tragedies, just the world throws at you, suffering, sin, whatever. When hard things come, your world gets shaken up a little bit. Coveting in that moment, it, it has one goal. It has one ambition, which is to feel better. That's what coveting wants. It wants to feel better. And it promises you that a change in circumstances will deliver you from this situation. They will save you and they will make you feel better. That's coveting. Hard things come, life feels a little shaky, you look at your circumstances, coveting tells you that the goal is we gotta feel better, and the way to do that is to change our circumstances, okay? Contentment, when hard things come, and they still do, and they still feel awful for the content heart. Okay, life still is hard for someone who lives in contentment. But when they, when they come, when life is hard, contentment tells you that the goal, the ambition, it's not to feel better, it's to glorify God. And it's to get more of God. That's the heart of contentment. It says, I want, what I want out of this situation and circumstances is to get more God and to glorify God. And the savior for me in this situation is not gonna be a change in circumstances, it's gonna be Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna wait on him. And I'm not going to save myself. I'm not going to try to eject. I'm not going to try to change my circumstances so that I can feel better. Instead, I'm going to trust that walking through these circumstances that my God sovereignly controls is going to glorify me, him, and give me more of him. Okay? That you're going to get more of your Savior. Okay? It's, it's using your circumstances to get more God. It's seeing your circumstances as an opportunity to trust in Jesus as Savior. Okay? So... Two kind of tools or techniques or ways that I impact this in my own head. The first, I've never taught on before because I just heard it at a conference last weekend. I thought it was so good. Um, so welcome, guinea pigs. Um, uh, it was a conference on the imagination and the mind and theology and C.S. Lewis and those kinds of things. And it was awesome. But one of the things that really stuck out to me, and especially when I was thinking about this and thinking about coveting versus contentment, is this tool that you have in that battle of your imagination. Okay, coveting wants to use your imagination to ask the question, what if, right? What if, what if you were married? Wouldn't you be happier? What if um, your kid gets sick? Will that ruin your life? What if your kid dies? What if your husband dies? What if you actually have cancer? And it wants to consume your mind and get you to contemplate and imagine what if all day long, both the positive aspects of what if and the negative. And it wants to promise you that a change in circumstance, thinking about that what if, is somehow going to help you. And it's not, FYI. The imagination over here under contentment, it's used to, to remind you, to help you to see what is. Okay? What is true? Because if you just look with your normal eyes, with these eyes, you won't see what is true. Okay, you'll just see the world. But if you use your imagination, you can see what is true, which is there's these angels in this room right now. And there's a God on his throne right now, and he's literally, by the power of his word, in every single moment, upholding every molecule and every atom inside your body. And he's working every detail from the traffic lights you hit to the way your car operates to the way your heart is functioning in the palm of his hand. 
That's what is true. That's what contentment thinks about. That's what contentment dwells in, is what is true. When hard circumstances come, when hard things happen, if, if your goal is to feel better, then, then coveting is gonna tell you to think about what if, right? But in that moment, if, if your goal is to testify true things about God, then contentment is gonna tell you, Fabs, think on what is. Think on what is true in this circumstance. Not what the world will tell you is true, but what God says is true, okay? The other kind of tool that I, I found helpful in this is thinking about what's true versus what might be true. Okay, coveting always tells you to think about what might be true, right? Coveting is what tells me when I am feeling sad or lonely in my singleness, coveting tells me, well, you know, if you uh, maybe didn't have so many daddy issues, probably wouldn't be single. And then I look at another girl who had a healthy relationship with her dad and I covet because this life that I've been given, the, the way that God has written my life seems to sabotage what would make me feel better, right? And that's the goal, to feel better. Over here, un under contentment, I can look at that and I can say, that might be true. It might be true, but obviously not the kind of truth I'm supposed to bank on because I'm supposed to bank on things that I know are true. What I know is true is that I'm single today because Jesus loves me because he's promised to work everything the best way for me, because he's promised to withhold no good from me, and today that means singleness. That's what is true. And the sneakiest thing I think that coveting will do is if you can't get the goals settled in your head, right? If you can't, in a hard moment, if you can't settle in your mind what your goal is, is it to feel better or is it to glorify God? Because if it's to feel better, you will find a better savior than Jesus, at least today, right? When I'm anxious about work, if I want to feel better, I can work more. It works. I've done it a billion times. It helps. Thursday night hits. I take my Sabbath on Friday. <coughs> and if I'm feeling stressed, all I need to do is open my email, clear out that inbox. I will feel so much better. But in that moment, what I did is from my anxiety, I looked to a savior that was working harder changing my circumstances because my goal was to feel better. I didn't wait on Jesus. I didn't testify anything true about him. I told lies about him. I, I said that there, there's nothing more important than feeling better. O over here, under contentment, I, I think about this anxiety as an opportunity to learn Jesus, to learn to believe his promises, that I don't have to be anxious in anything because he's sovereign over all the world. And he alone is going to deliver me from eternal anxiety. That he controls my work. That the, the work that I spend my life on, unless the Lord builds the house, it won't stand anyway. That I don't have to break his commands in order to be f living out my calling. I don't have to do that and I can trust him in that. But you know what? Sometimes I trust him in that and I still feel anxious for 24 more hours. All day during my Sabbath. If you want to feel better, this world has a million things it will offer you. If you want to glorify God, if you want to testify true things about God, then contentment is the only life for you. A life where you will exploit those unpleasant emotions as an opportunity to wait on a savior and to testify true things about God. Okay? The, one of the best examples I know of this, ironically, is Elizabeth Elliot. Um, that book that I threw across the room was called Passion and Purity, and it's the story of... Elizabeth Elliot's relationship with Jim Elliot. She uh, met this guy who was like 
Bible nerd 101, super into like, you know, the Bible and missions and all that stuff. And Elizabeth being the sweet godly woman that she was, was like, perfect, the man for me. Uh, They met and he was like, hey, I love you. Like he said that like two weeks after they met or something, but I am called to singleness. I'm called to live out the mission of God in singleness. And I know that. So I want to guard your heart. I want to protect you. I want to let you know that. All of Passion and Purity is the five-year saga of Elizabeth Elliot having this longing for this man who was not her husband and her wrestling with that, her praying for God to change his heart or her heart or something, do something. And there's this moment in the book where she's talking about that frustration of like, I don't care what you do, God. Like, I don't care if it's that I don't get to have him or that I do get to have him, but make me feel better. Like, make me change my heart or change his, but make it so this situation isn't so awfully unpleasant and uncomfortable all the time. And the conclusion she kind of comes to in that moment is that this discomfort in the soul is where worship is born. It's where obedience counts. It's where you offer God a sacrifice that didn't cost you nothing. It's where you follow him because you believe in him not because he's useful to you like a prescription drug, but because he's your Lord and he's your king and he's your savior. And your heart is gonna follow, it's gonna catch up, it just takes a little time. And in heaven, it's gonna be all the way caught up. That's gonna be great. Um, So yeah, that's what I have on that. Oh, I do have one more thing. I think that the the tendency of how this plays out in us, the reason this is problematic to our design as biblical womanhood is it sabotages, again, our ability to help, right? If you're living under a worldview of coveting, you won't help anybody. You'll be jealous of them. You'll be frustrated with them. You'll be annoyed with them when they get blessings you don't, or you'll judge them when you get blessings they don't. You'll look down on them. You'll think their struggles are stupid. You think yours are more valuable. That's what coveting produces. You can't help people like that. Contentment produces this heart that really believes that the way your story is written is the way it was supposed to be written for your good. It's so unique. It's so beautiful. It means that when I look at my friend Teresa, who's married and has a baby, I can celebrate for her. That doesn't make me insecure about being single. For me to look at her and and tell her that you have to have this little boy, Caleb, today in order for you to honor and glorify God, it doesn't make me feel like, oh, but what does that communicate about me being single? It means I can help and empower and encourage her because I believe God wrote her life perfectly and I believe he wrote my life perfectly. And even though her lives look really different, that's still true. That's true in good times and that's true in bad times that we can trust God. That's, that's the heart of contentment. And it means, I was thinking about this when you guys were sharing on that panel. It was awesome. I was standing in the back trying not to cry. Um, I just want to tell y'all, this is victory. That is victory. The fight is victory. Victory doesn't mean no pain. It doesn't mean no wrestling. It doesn't mean no hard days. Victory means that even though it hurts, you're trusting God. That even though it's hard, you're going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to fight another day. That's victory. We call that a win, right? We call that the spirit of God. Conviction like that is evidence that you belong to God, that you're his kid. That's the win. That's where you get to honor him. That's where you get to glorify him in the struggle. Nothing makes God look more beautiful than when you will trust him, even when it's hard, even when it's a fight. That's what makes him look beautiful, okay? 
Um, let me pray for us, and then I, is there a panel? Yeah, okay, let me pray. <laughs> All right. How was everyone's lunch? Delicious? Good. I wish you guys could see the great charts that I make to help me with my teaching. They're beautiful. An artist would be proud. Um, Cool. Okay, so we've got two attributes of biblical womanhood left that we're going to talk through um, how we're made what they are underneath, and then how they've been distorted. Uh, The first one (coughs) is going to be manipulation versus persuasion. Yeah, oh, I like that. (laughs) That response. Manipulation versus persuasion. So, you guys remember we talked about coveting versus contentment, okay? We had coveting, which was this, this trust that, that your circumstances are an opportunity to, to get to know Jesus, to see him, to believe that he is working all things for your good and for his glory and to trust him in that, display that. And you had coveting, which is fueled by wanting to feel better, not, not the glory of God, and coveting, which thinks that a change in circumstances is what will display you. Both coveting and contentment are heart conditions. Right? They happen inside. Nobody can see them. Coveting and contentment. I mean, if you, do, if you do coveting the way I do it, people can see it. But <laughs> most of the time, it, it stays in our heart. It's those secret thoughts that tell us that if we just had X, Y, Z, our life would be better. But we as women are not made to just have inward heart thoughts or feelings about the world. We are people who influence the world. We take action in the world. We change the world around us for better or for worse. And coveting, if, if you press into that fuel in your heart, the outward display of that, how it takes action, is manipulation. Contentment, the inward heart disposition, how it takes action, how it becomes visible in the world is through persuasion. Okay? Persuasion is basically exploiting your circumstances, exploiting them as an opportunity to change this world for the better. Using your circumstances to influence this world for the glory of God, to, to make this world look more like what God wants it to. Okay? Manipulation is fueled by coveting. It's fueled by the belief that your circumstances are the problem, and it's taking action to change your circumstances to be what you want. Okay? The goal of these two things is so different. Okay? Manipulation wants what we want to make us feel better. Whatever we think will make us feel better is what we want. Okay, we want our circumstances to change, and we're going to do whatever it takes to change them. That's manipulation. Persuasion wants the glory of God. It wants what God wants. It wants this world to look more like God, and it wants to use our circumstances, exploit our situation to get to that end. Okay? The, the best example I can think of of this in the Bible is Esther. In the book of Esther, chapter 4, uh, we set it up a little bit. Esther's this girl who got married to the king of Persia, and she is this beautiful young woman according to the text and she's in this situation where she is Jewish but the king doesn't know that and this decree kind of comes forward that they're going to destroy all the Jews (coughs) all the people of God and Esther's uncle comes to her and is basically like hey Esther look you got to do something the king is super into you because you're really beautiful you're his wife if anyone can do anything here to change this situation it's going to be you and Esther says, nah, I don't think so because I could die. And so let's just not do that. And Mordecai responds in chapter 4, verse 12, and he says, Do not think to yourself, 
that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Okay, and it's that, those last little words that are the key to persuasion for such a time as this. Right? Persuasion sees the world, sees what God is doing in the world, sees his calling to go and make disciples of all the nation. And it looks at your life, at your circumstances, both the good and the bad, things that have gone wrong, sin tendencies you've struggled with, ways you've failed, ways the world has failed you. It sees all those things and it thinks for such a time as this. All these circumstances are happening so that I can change this world for the glory of God. So that I can use my circumstances, not to try to escape my circumstance, but to use them to exploit my circumstances, to influence this world so it can look more like God's revealed will. Okay, that's the heart of persuasion. Manipulation, on the other hand, is the absolute distortion of that because women have this weird thing in them where they have this power to influence. If we talked about helper being, you know, while well, you have this person who's kind of executing the tasks and then you have this helper who is empowering, enabling the person to execute the tasks, um, that's what manipulation and persuasion is. That, that's, women do this naturally. Even when you want your circumstances to change, very few of you go out and like do the tasks. Most of you, even when you're operating out of operating out of that covetousness, most of you seek to manipulate other people to get them to do what you want. You know that inside of you, there is this power to to enable and empower people to, to do what God has called them to. And you know that you, within your words, can speak to them in such a way that it helps move them forward. Whether you're going to do that for the glory of God or yourself is the distinction between manipulation and persuasion. Whether you're going to empower and enable them to the cause of Christ or your own cause is the distinction between manipulation and persuasion. Okay, so manipulation fueled by covetousness. You want change in your circumstances so that you can get what you want. There's something between you and what you want. Manipulation is your way of trying to get around whatever's between you and what you want. Okay, it's, it's um, so sneaky because I think because of the, the design of women, not very many of us like to directly disobey the commands of God. I mean, I'm a, I'm a rebel. I like, don't like rules. I respond really badly to them. But even in that, I try to do it in such a way that I could explain what I did, right? I, I, I try to find a way through the rules, right? And that's all manipulation is. You, you hear a no on something. And you're not going to go against the no, but you're going to change the no, right? That's manipulation. It can, it can play out in three kind of practical forms that I see with women. It's emotional manipulation, forceful manipulation, and what I call, there's got to be a better word for it than this, but feminine manipulation. So let's start with emotional manipulation. This is something that, that you and I do naturally every day, okay? There's something between us and what we want, and we need it to move, and we want to change the circumstances because then we'll feel better. Our, our heart is fueled in covetousness. We just want to change circumstances to feel better. And so we use our emotions to manipulate the, the circumstances and shift them to get people out of our way. Okay? Um, I emotionally manipulate my coworkers about 15 times a day. I'm really good at it. And usually I don't know until like two weeks later. That's how sneaky I am. It, it happens without even me thinking about consciously doing it. It happens when a coworker will come in and be like, hey, here's the plan. Here's what we're doing on Sunday. Here's how we're going to do the announcements. And in my head, I'm thinking, gosh, that announcement is not going to get enough women in the thing that I want them in. I'm not thinking about the glory of God. I'm thinking about Fabs and what she wants when she teaches. And so. 
I'm like, okay, I need there to be more people there. And so I'm going to try to convince him to get there to be more people there. And before even knowing what's happened, I've been, this is how I've responded in the situation. Hey, Fabs, you know, we're not going to be able to do this announcement on Sunday. Oh, okay. Well, gosh, that's really hard. And being the sweet coworker that he is, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Is that going to be okay? I'm like, well, yeah, I guess that'll be okay. And he's like, well, let me, let me go back and see if I can do things a little differently. Okay, that, I mean, that would be so great if you could, because this is just really hard. We've worked really hard on this project, and I'd be really sad if you didn't announce it, you know? <laughs> I don't do any of that intentionally. It just happens, and I can see the way that God made biblical women, because I see men respond. They hate it when you feel uncomfortable emotionally. They hate feeling in the same room that you're feeling uncomfortable emotionally. <laughs> they hate tears. They don't want any part of it. They want to fix. God made men to fix. And every, every woman in this room knows that in your heart of hearts. And you know that if you're upset or you're uncomfortable, they're going to fix. That's what's going to happen. And so we've learned through basic conditioning and through our sinful flesh that if we respond in a certain way emotionally, men are going to change what they're doing. And we're going to get what we want. But it's, it's manipulation. That's not what God designed our emotions for. We're going to talk more through emotions in a second, but that's, that's not what we were made for. Okay? When I have a, we, we do a women's development program at our church, and when I have a girl in the program who gets to a point of tension where her sin is just rubbing against her, and she hates it, and she feels uncomfortable, and we meet, and we talk through it, and I'm like, hey, we love you, and we're for you, but this is where you're going to have to, you're going to, have to hang there with us. You're going to have to trust us that what is happening right now is working out something really good in you, and I know it's hard. And she'll be like, okay. And then two, two days, usually later, I'll be called into my boss's office and he'll be like, hey, I got a phone call from the husband of this girl who is really upset, she's really overwhelmed, and she's leaving women's development. I'm like, well, I met with her last two days ago and we talked about her leaving women's development. And I asked her to trust me on it. And if she's going to leave women's development, I want her to come and talk to me about it. Too late now, it's dead. She wanted to leave women's development, but she wasn't brave enough to tell me that. She wanted out of it because she didn't like how it felt. That was it, plain and simple, and she knew I was going to call her on that. And so she went home to her husband and emotionally manipulated him, even though he's a great, godly guy, convinced him that the uncomfortable emotions she's feeling will be fixed by a change in circumstance, which they might. You stop pushing on sin and it'll leave you alone. So... He goes to this other guy, comes to me, and she's ejected. Let's not, let's not be women like that. Right? Let's fight through the uncomfortable feelings. Let's not manipulate our way out of situations, particularly and especially by preying on the, the beautiful design of men in wanting to fix things. Okay? So that's emotional manipulation. The second one is forceful manipulation. Uh, this is... Uh, you know, a little more visible, um, or it seems like it would be. Uh, it, it includes kind of berating, nagging, pressuring. This is when my coworker comes in, says we're not going to do an announcement on Sunday, and I'm like, hey, we need to talk about that. 
We're going to do an announcement on Sunday. Let me tell you, I've been working on this for three weeks blah, 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 and I will just keep going. And if he doesn't respond to that, I'll send an email to someone else and copy him on it and be like, hey, someone says, says we're not doing an announcement on Sunday, but we really need an announcement on Sunday. So can you talk to them? And I copied them on this. So you guys are just already in connection, but we need to do this. And if I don't get a response from that, there'll be several text messages sent. And this is forceful manipulation instead of trusting the leadership or trying to persuade them. We'll talk in a minute about what that would look like. I try to manipulate them by pressuring them. I have seen this work very, um, I want to say successfully, even though I don't really think it's success, but I've seen it happen um, in, in most of my friends' marriages. While I'm in the room, what will happen is the wife will ask for something from the husband. Be like, hey, I've been thinking about this. What do you think about this? And he'd be like, hey, we've talked about this. I don't think that's the right decision. She's like, okay, yeah. So... Uh, when you said you didn't think it was the right decision, did you mean that it wasn't going to work for right now? Or what did you mean? He's like, hey, I, I just don't think it's a good idea. And then five minutes later, she'll be like, hey, I needed an answer on that thing. And I want to stand up and be like, I think he gave you an answer. I'm pretty sure he said he didn't want to do it. But she can't, she didn't hear that. What she heard was he's in process. He's thinking about it. She didn't hear a no. She heard we can work on this. And so she keeps pressuring. And almost every single time I've seen this happen. It ends with the husband being like, okay, do whatever. Because again, they're not made this way. You have a power in your words. You do. If you push enough, you can get what you want. The question is, is that really what you want? Or is that just what your flesh wants? Is that just what the part that's wrapped around who you really are wants? Okay, so forceful manipulation is that pressuring, that nagging, that constantly bringing some, something up and up again. Because if you don't bring it up, then Lord knows God can't be working on it. He needs your help. <laughs> and the third one that I awkwardly named feminine manipulation is basically all the things that make us unique and precious as women that make us distinct. It's using those things to get other people to do what you want. Okay, and it can be as simple as, you know... I'm lazy and I don't like to hang things up. And so when we were redesigning our offices, I was like, ah, guys, will you hang my pictures for me? I can't do it. <laughs> yes, I can. I'm an adult. It's not like a 500 pound picture. It's like this big, but I manipulate and I do it preying on this thing about me that is true, which is that I am this weaker vessel and that's going to appeal to manhood to want to step in and fix it. But it's because I'm lazy and because I don't want to hang up a picture. It's not for the glory of God. It's not for the right reasons. I'm using my power for evil. It ha- happens in bigger ways. You know, for, for those of you in here who are, who are single, you, you know what this looks like. You want to feel loved by a man. You want to feel known by a man. And so you give pieces of your heart away to men who are not your husband so that you can get that need met. These uniquely soft and vulnerable qualities about you, you give them to anyone, even though it hasn't been asked, even though it hasn't been in God's timing. Because you want to feel known and loved. You want what you want. And so you're willing to use this thing that's really special and precious about you to get approval, to get affection. It's how you dress. I mean, you dress in such a way that emphasizes your womanhood. Why? For the glory of God? Or to get what you want, which is approval, applause, whatever it is, right? That's feminine manipulation. So, um, the mistake, the reason that kind of happens is we see our lens. It's that coveting versus contentment. Again, it's seeing your life through the lens of deficiency. You feel like you're lacking something. 
And this power that God has given you to change the world, you want to use to get you the thing that you think you lack. But the Bible and contentment say, and they speak over you, you don't lack anything. Right? In Hebrews it says, be content in all things. Why? Because I have said, never shall I leave you or forsake you. If you have God, you don't lack anything. There is no deficiency. Your power doesn't need to be used to get you anything. You have everything in Christ. That, that power to influence, it has to be used to get for God, to get glory, to get worship, to get praise for him, not to get more for you. You don't have any deficiency. You don't have any lack. So if I'm going to give one final illustration of how this plays out, I'll use Elizabeth Elliot again. Uh, at the end of Passion and Purity, I finally conceded after years of throwing the book, picking it up, throwing it book, picking it up, that maybe Elizabeth knew a little something about contentment. She learned in those five years of wrestling with um, her feelings and her affections for this man, um, she learned to trust God. She learned that he was sufficient. She learned she had everything she needed for life and godliness. And um, the book ended very unsatisfyingly to me because I was like, well, I want to hear about, you know, what happened. Um, So a few years later, I kind of learned the story of what happened. Elizabeth and Jim got married. They got married. It was great. After this five-year saga, he was like, okay, no, you know what? I think I can marry you. Um, And in my head, I was like, why didn't she include that in Passion and Purity and tell us the story of their happily ever after? And it's because of how their story went. They got married, and um, they got married on the mission field in South America. They both moved there kind of separately and came together. They were married, I think, for three years. In that time, they got pregnant with a little girl, had a little girl. And three years after they got married, um, Jim Elliott was martyred by Indians um, in South America. He was killed on the beach. And Elizabeth gets the news that her husband, who she waited for for five years, is dead. Um, And in that moment, if your heart was covetous, if you had been... um, if if the longing and the pain had been taken away by the change in circumstance, by getting Jim Elliot, then your peace is gone. But if the peace had come through Jesus, then the peace isn't gone. So it's in this moment, you know, when Elizabeth gets this news and she has this little baby girl um, and her husband's just died, that she gets to decide what she's going to do with her world. Um, and so what she decides to do is she takes the little girl, straps her to her body, walks right into the forest to the Indians who slaughtered her husband, and she spends the next years of her life preaching the gospel to them. That's persuasion. And all the failure that those men had had in sharing the gospel happened in that culture because the group of Indians that they were ministering to had no, they had no paradigm for forgiveness. They had no paradigm for grace. They understood wrath. They understood judgment. They understood justice. They didn't understand grace. And no matter how the men talked about it, they couldn't understand it until they had standing in their midst the wife of the man they'd murdered who wanted to spend her life on them. She spent herself to share the gospel with them, and that tribe came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that didn't happen because Elizabeth was like, I'm going to worship God despite my circumstance. It happened because she was like, I'm going to worship God because of my circumstance, through my circumstance. That this, that Jim's death is an opportunity for me to bring glory to God in a way that he couldn't, and in a way that I couldn't while he was alive. And that can only happen in a heart that's fueled by deep contentment, that's embraced Jesus alone as Savior. 
And a heart that believes that knows that in any circumstance, just like Paul says, in all things, you can display the truth of who God is and that all your circumstances are an opportunity to display God. Guys, the day I get married, if I get married, I will no longer have the opportunities I have as a single woman. And for those of you in here who are single, embrace this season of life with the unique opportunities it gives you. Those of you who are married in here, you have opportunities that I don't have. Those of you in here who have kids, you can minister to the teachers of the children, the teachers of your children at their schools in ways that if I went in and tried to minister to them, it'd be creepy and weird, and they'd be like, who are you? Those of you who are struggling with fertility, like, you have an opportunity to minister and to display the glory of God in ways you won't once you get pregnant. That's the truth. You have an opportunity to glorify God, to use your circumstances as they are right now to display the truth about who he is. And it's a change in circumstances. It's going to bring more opportunities and it's going to remove the ones you have now. So don't waste the ones you have now. This is it. This is a limited time opportunity to worship God, right? And then you'll get to worship him more, but with forever not bad circumstances. So that'll be good. Um, so go ahead and take like a couple of minutes and just jot down anything that's kind of jumping out to you that you feel like God is saying to you. All right. <clears throat> Last but not least, emotions. Let's talk about emotions. Um, God designed us to uniquely display his glory by making us emotional beings. And that gets distorted in a number of ways that we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but first, I'll tell you a little story about emotional thefts. Um, I, I think I used to pride myself on not being super emotional, but I don't know why, because I'm pretty emotional. Um, but there was one particular day where this was revealed to me in humorous fashion. <clears throat> I had a, a couple who were friends at the time who were married, and they were... Um, some of my closest friends, and we used to spend kind of Friday nights, I'd go over to their house, they'd make dinner for me, we'd hang out, we'd watch TV, it was awesome, I loved it a lot. I, I felt like they were my family. Um, and one particular Friday, I'd planned to go hang out with them, and I got a, f- a phone call from the girl, who just, she just said, hey, we actually need some alone time tonight, we're just going to have a date night. Great, perfect. In a moment where I'm trusting Jesus for my righteousness and believe in him, then that's perfect. This wasn't one of such moments. Um, This was a moment where I suddenly had this paralyzing thought that they're my family, but I'm not their family. Like for me, it goes God, them. They're it. They're all I have. And for them, it goes God, each other, me. And that is kind of a paralyzing thought for me in singleness. The moments where I'm like, but I don't have anybody else. <laughs> like, this is it for me. You're it for me. And I realize that that's not reciprocated. That's not the same. Um, so in this moment, when that happened, I was like, well, the only logical thing that you can do is get in your car, drive for hours and weep. Um, so that's what I did. I got in my car and I drove for hours and I finally pulled off the road into a graveyard um, because when I passed the graveyard, I thought to myself, those people know how I feel. <laughs> um, so I drive in, I'm walking around, I'm reading tombstones and I used to have this picture in my phone of this tombstone I found. It was said um, something like to, for my wife, whatever her name was, who was killed by the Indians. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so sad. 
And for some reason, again, I felt like I could really identify um, because I was in such deep distress that I could imagine this is what it feels like. The way I feel right now is probably how it feels to be killed by Indians. So I sat there at the tombstone. I wept hours and hours and hours. Um, it started to rain, which was just perfect. Um, I could drive back crying in the rain. I got home. The next day I woke up, everything was fine, and I had this great picture of the tombstone to remind me of that day. Now... I always use this story as an example, probably because it's the funniest one that I can think of, but what always um, is challenging for me is that that story could have played out a different way, and it would also have been the same way, which is I could have gotten off the phone with my friend and realized that I felt really alone, unloved, unknown, whatever, and that sin, um, it played out in me getting in the car and driving to a graveyard because I didn't trust the sufficiency of Christ. It, could have just as easily turned out that I got out of my computer and looked at porn for four hours. But if I told that story, no one in this room would laugh. I wouldn't laugh. And so I, I have to ask myself, is it because those things are different? I don't think so. I think that Satan has done a number on women and convinced them that our emotional outbursts that are rooted in sin are funny. And he's convinced us that that's a joke, that to drive for five hours because you don't trust God and to look at a gravestone because you don't trust God is funny, but looking at porn because you don't trust God isn't funny. Both of those things are the same. They're born out of the same heart. They're the exact same sin before God, but Satan has convinced us to laugh at one and not the other. And I think because of that, we all have a bunch of sin that we're letting wrap around us and make us believe it's who we are. Um, the number of times that I've heard women and men talk about how women are just crazy. It's just how we are. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's how we are. I think that's our flesh wrapped around us. And I think underneath it, we're, we're beautifully logical and rational and emotional. And I don't think those things are at odds. I don't think they're at war and I don't think they're a joke. I think they're in us to display the glory of God. I think we have powerful imaginations and I think we feel things deeply and I think that's awesome. And I think it's become distorted. It's become a sin tendency and we just treat that as okay when it's not. So Let's talk about what it looks like redeemed and what it looks like distorted. At the end of the day, we're made to be emotional. And the kind of emotions that, that we're made to have are those that reflect reality. Okay? The bottom line, we're supposed to have emotions that reflect true things about God, that display who he really is. Okay? But what's happened is they've become distorted and we use our emotions to display false things about God. False things about who he is. Okay? And there's three ways that we do that. This slide says things that it's not the three things I'm talking about, so just keep that in mind if you're an outline follower. Um, there's three ways that we use our emotions to testify things that aren't reality, okay? One is by extreme positive emotions that aren't in reflection to reality, right? Extreme positive emotions that aren't based on reality. Those extreme positive emotions, although they look very nice from the outside, they testify lies, Okay, so <clears throat> when I, um, you know, if I ever got a text from a guy, for example, if that ever happened, then I would, <laughs> let's say hypothetically, that I would receive it and be so excited because it's probably what would happen. Um, I'm, I mean, I think this happened once, like back in the 90s, and... <laughs> 
I think I was so excited that the emotion I displayed was as if Jesus himself had ridden in on his white horse to redeem and rescue and restore us all to himself. That level of positive emotion, while it was exciting for my friends around me to be a part of, it's exhilarating, it feels great, but it's there because I think I found my savior. That's why it's there. Because I I think I found the thing that will finally save me, that will deliver me from pain and loneliness and anxiety for all of my life. That joy should be proportional to reality. That, yeah, there's another creature who actually just sent me a text that didn't even indicate any interest. But that's cool because God makes creatures and we can be brothers and sisters and that's awesome. And there's joy in that. I'm not saying there's less joy. I'm saying that those high positive emotions that are an indicator of finding salvation should not be assigned to temporal things. Okay? I'm, not, I'm going to clarify in a minute that I'm not talking about less joy for your life. I'm talking about more. But in that high, high that comes from thinking you found a savior shouldn't be associated with temporal things. That testifies a lie. And same thing on the negative emotion scale, right? Um, when I had allergies this week, I, um, I'm a comfort person. I like to feel physically well. I have a hard time doing anything when I don't. So Tuesday, mold and ragweed teamed up and came at me, um, and I thought I was going to die and actually wanted that. <laughs> I welcomed death. I thought, that will be a blessed relief for how I feel right now. And, you know, my friend comes home, my roommate, and she's like, hey, how are you doing today? And the right response is, oh my gosh, my allergies are bad. It's okay, but my allergies are bad. That's the right response. I could not hold it together. I was like, I don't know how to do this life like this. Like, I mean, I really, and I wasn't just like pretending. I felt that way, like in despair, that like my life is uh, hell personified because of how I felt. We all have the negative emotions that tip us off to that too that tip us off to what our earthly, our version of hell really is, right? When you feel negative emotions, when you get feedback from your husband or from your boss, and instead of being like, hey, that's good feedback, you're shaken to the core of who you are. You feel panic, you feel anxiety, you don't know how to function. That's because you're finding your identity in something other than Jesus Christ. That's because you need their affirmation in order to believe that you have value and worth in this world. That negative emotion is not in response to reality. All that's happened is someone has pointed at at your resume, which you already knew was faulty and couldn't be trusted to stand on. They've reminded you it's not trustworthy to, to stand on. Nothing's been lost. Nothing has changed. You're still accepted before the only one whose acceptance matters. But when that negative emotion comes in, it was so heightened, so disproportionate to reality, it testifies to something untrue. Okay? So you can have positive emotions that testify to untrue things. You can have negative emotions that testify to untrue things. But mostly, the biggest way that I think we've distorted the capacity we have for emotions is by not feeling emotions to the right things. So right now, um, if we think back to what is true, using our imaginations and our minds, um, what is true is that there's this being who is a person who is perfectly good and perfectly beautiful and perfectly kind and before an eternity passed he was with himself loving himself worshiping himself satisfied fully in himself and he thought what can i do to share this goodness how can i let my goodness overflow and he decided to make it overflow in creation he created you and not not just creation but he created people to be image bearers. And then not just people, he created new creatures that he was going to make in Christ. 
and he's going to give you himself forever. And the right emotional response to that is weeping and screaming and falling on your face and worshiping and never getting up. And the biggest way our emotions have been distorted is not that we're too emotional. It's that we're not emotional enough about the right things. That's the biggest distortion, that we're not emotional enough. You could put all the emotions in this room together. You could mix them up in a big fat bowl and you will not come close to the level of emotion that our God experiences. The most emotional being in the universe is God. You are not too emotional You're not emotional about the right things. Your emotions aren't being used to testify true things about God. And the call um, to, to return to biblical womanhood is not a call to be less emotional. It's a call to use your emotions to testify truth. To be emotional about God. To sit, when, when you get home tonight, to, after you put your kids to bed, to tuck yourself away in your closet or the bathroom or wherever you can find alone time or alone space, And just think about the day when your faith is going to be sight. Think about what he's going to look like, because I don't really know. Think about how it's going to feel. Think about the best thing you've experienced on earth, and then remember that all this earth is 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 but a shadow and a metaphor for the the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God. You're going to experience him. No more metaphors. Him, the, the reality. And let that stir your heart. Think on it. Till it stirs your heart, be emotional about that. I have one more thought, and then we're going to be done. But I, I think the the main reason that God made us emotional is because emotions, maybe more than anything else, are evidence, and they testify and they reveal that God is not just useful; that He's beautiful. He's not just useful, that he's beautiful. If you think about salvation, you think about the gospel, um, you know, you can, John Piper has this metaphor where he says, you can take a man to water, you can shove his head under the water, you could even make him drink the water if you want, but what you can't do, what no human being can do, even to themselves, is taste the water and believe with every part of their being that that water tastes better to them than life. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Not just that you drink the water, but you believe the water tastes better to you than life, that you, that you believe that it's not just God's glory because that's your duty, but because there's nothing that makes you happier than seeing God. Because he's beautiful to you, not just useful. He's not just a means to get to heaven. He's not just a means to have a good day. He's not just a means to being a good wife. He's not just a means to getting your anxiety go away. But he is the prize. He is the treasure. He is not just useful. He's beautiful. And it's your emotions that testify that. There are thousands and millions of people who walk in accordance to the law of God because they think it's useful. That's not what it means to be a Christian. And... and Going back, I want to end with this. When we talked about coveting versus contentment, and we talked about that coveting tells you to do whatever it takes to feel better, and contentment tells you to seek the glory of God, I want to be really clear on one thing. That at the end of the day, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not call you to pick between those two things. Okay? It's, It's not a choice between happiness and holiness. That's been Satan's business from the start, to try to get you to think that. The glory of God is where your happiness is. 
the glory of God, holiness, all that means is, is looking more like him. That's where your joy is. That's where you'll feel better. That's what you're looking for, the prize of Christ. And that's where your emotions come in. They show the world that you picked God, not because he's useful, not because he's your ticket to heaven, but because he opens your eyes through giving you a new heart to see that he is beautiful, that he's the prize above all prizes. Okay. Um, I hope that makes sense. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a panel. God, um, I want to uh, feel the things I say. You know how badly I want that. I think every heart in, in this room wants that. We want to feel what's true. But we, we can't make our hearts feel We've never been able to do that. God, so much of our behavior we feel like we can control. Even our thoughts we feel like we can control. But our hearts, they're like this mystery and this mess that we know only you can control. And I thank you for that because that's really how all of us is. But with our hearts, we know that we're dependent on you. We need your spirit to breathe joy into our hearts when we hear your name. We need you to make us worship you in spirit and in truth. We cannot do that unless your spirit reveals to us, gives us the the power, the wisdom, the strength to grasp how high, how deep your love is, your goodness is. And so I pray today during this panel and during worship and during processing that you would just give us a taste of that. Just work a miracle in this room, God. Even now, even as I pray, send your spirit to quicken the hearts of the women in this room. Help them feel what's true, that you are the prize. That the things we long for, the purpose, the value, the husband, the, the, the love that we long for, it's just a longing for you. It stabs to remind us that we were made for you. Our hearts will never be at peace till they're with you. I pray that you would just do a work in, in this next couple hours Work miracles in us. Change us, God. Quicken our hearts. Help us be people who love to feel what's true. I pray all that in your son's name. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.